I'm Catherine Cartwright, and you're listening to the Pothole Problem Podcast, hosted by Dr. Jack Miller. I would like to make a few comments. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. This war is for the soul of America. Because of the way this society is organized, you have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. Our side, our side, our side. It's a crisis that strikes in the we are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? It all seems a long way from a time when politics was a national passion and sometimes even fun. Attempting on a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. Three, two, one. We are met here as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans, to solve that problem. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Pothole Problem Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jack Miller. I'm alone for this episode, but I'm occasionally joined by my son and co-host Zane Emerson, who's now a sophomore studying political science at Lewis and Clark College. He'll be joining me in the future to discuss political phenomena like authoritarianism and democratic voting systems and any other subject we find fascinating and compelling. It could go anywhere when Zane gets on the mic. It's been since November 17th, 2021 that I last did an episode of this podcast, so I want to remind everybody and let new listeners know what this show is and is not about. Outrage, frustration, fear, and confusion are common feelings about politics in America today. It's no fun to feel this way. We all know that. So what we're trying to do in this show is to explore political outrage in a way that won't make you more outraged and might even make you less. We frequently interview people who are involved in politics in some way, as activists, public officials, pundits, strategists, reformers, all the ways people engage in and try to influence the political system. The focus of these interviews is how they work with and make use of their outrage and the other strong emotions that are typically aroused by politics. They examine what they've learned about themselves and about the world as they've grappled with the issues and outcomes that matter to them. Put another way, this podcast is dedicated to exploring the human side of politics, what a political life is like, felt from the inside. We largely avoid talking about issues and current events and political ideologies, all the controversial things that get people arguing about their opinions and positions. There's plenty of that elsewhere, all over the internet and social media. Those things might come up in the interviews, of course. We're not trying to silence people when they want to talk about controversial topics, but we're mostly interested in getting a sense of each guest's emotional experience as a person immersed in politics and what kind of things they've learned as a human being from that experience. Okay, so that's kind of the rough mission statement. This is the first episode of Year 5. For those of you who are longtime listeners, you might be thinking, Year 5? I feel like you've only done maybe two years. Fair enough. This is only episode 38. But I'm calling this year five because I premiered the Pothole Problem podcast in September 2019, and if I'd kept doing it straight through as originally intended, this would be the start of our fifth year. So yes, I'm kind of giving myself credit for continuous production, or maybe just noting that it's been four years since I started this experiment in political podcasting. We all know that a lot has happened in the intervening time. A pandemic, a tense election, an insurrection, a men's World Cup and a women's World Cup, and a lot else. There's been plenty to occupy your attention, so I'm hoping you'll ignore the two huge gaps in production and just run with the whole year five thing. I've actually been pretty busy while the pothole problem was on its hiatus. I've been doing my usual teaching at Portland State, of course, and I'm writing a new novel, my third. 
I just this morning finished the first draft, and it's 600 pages, so now I have to chisel that down into something a bit more concise. I've also produced two other limited series podcasts, Two Ring Circus, a podcast about Congress, and Applied Political Philosophy, a show exploring political reform. You can find links to these shows in this episode's show notes and link to our website under affiliates. I'm currently producing a third show, The Scrum, about interest groups in American politics. That should be released by the end of 2023. So, not to dwell on the excuse for calling this year five, but I've been busily producing content about American politics, and I'm ready to give the Pothole Problem podcast a fresh start. Year five, baby. Here we come. One of the things I did while producing the other podcasts I've worked on over the past two years was develop a few additional voices. You might call them alter egos. I did this partly to be humorous and partly to lend some diversity to these solo productions. It's much more interesting, in my opinion, to listen to a podcast that has multiple people talking rather than just one, and I was doing these shows by myself. But as I've reflected further, I've realized that these alter egos perform another more subtle and important task. They give me a chance to explore, in a very concrete way, different perspectives on politics that aren't necessarily my own. To feel from the inside what it's like to look at things in a way that's not my go-to viewpoint. I'm always trying to look at issues and arguments from as many angles as possible. I consider myself a natural devil's advocate, and I drop into this role all the time in my teaching to make sure my students get to hear different ways of looking at the things we're discussing. When I'm alone doing a podcast, I don't have that range of views I get from the students or the devil's advocate opportunities that it raises, and I found that using these alter egos is a good way of exercising that muscle. Let me introduce the crew. Nigel Wilkerson, the first alter ego to make himself present to me, is my British correspondent on American politics. He allows me to see American politics, which I'm so very, very immersed in, both professionally and personally, from an outsider's perspective. I'm Nigel Wilkerson, reporting from America. I'm fascinated by the quirks of your so-called democratic system, and I work very hard to help make sense of these quirks for our audience. Thank you for having me on the show. Thanks, Nigel. Your perspective is always appreciated. Next is Bob Sharp. He's what I jokingly refer to as my token conservative. I prefer to think of myself as the voice of traditional reason, something I find notably lacking in today's world. No offense, Jack. None taken, Bob. Bob's voice is based on a William Buckley impersonation I did for Zane one day when we were talking about old-school conservative intellectuals. He'd never heard of William Buckley, who was a giant of conservatism when I was his age, so of course I had to give him a taste of the inimitable Buckley accent. Doing that brought back a lot of old memories for me of a different time in American politics. I went to college in Washington, D.C. in the late 80s. My freshman dorm was five blocks from the Reagan White House, and I had a lot of friends who were conservatives and Republicans. Back then, we used to hang out and drink together and talk politics and philosophy, just like a lot of young people do today, except we weren't siloed off from each other by the partisan divide. We disagreed about almost everything, but it wasn't a major emotional effort to be in the same room and hear their ideas and opinions. And I learned the arguments behind their positions from their own mouths, which was extremely valuable. In the end, I was rarely convinced that their arguments were stronger than my own, but I could see where they were coming from and understood that they weren't idiots or irrational assholes for taking the positions they did. Bob allows me to channel what I learned from my conservative friends in college about the Republican-leaning viewpoint. He's admittedly a kind of traditional conservative, part libertarian, part family values guy, an intellectual who's not necessarily a mainstream Republican anymore, or at least not the most important voice of the party in the conservative movement in the 2020s. I haven't yet developed a voice of the more recent Republican Party's populist wing, call it the Trump wing if you want, but I'm working on it. It's difficult. 
My latest creation, Catherine Cartwright, who will be hosting the Scrum Podcast, is my attempt at introducing a female perspective, a Southern one with a mixture of old-school conservatism and modern ironic liberalism. I'll admit that Catherine sounds a little bit like Dustin Hoffman in Tootsie, but it's the best I can do for a female voice at this point. I think you do quite well, Dr. Miller, and I appreciate your humbleness and sense of humor about it. Thanks, Catherine. So okay, those are the alter egos as of today, September 26th, 2023. My son Zane worries a bit about me slipping into multiple personality disorder. I'm not too worried about it, but it's good to know someone's watching out for me and my potential psychosis. Is everybody ready? The Pothole Problem Podcast is supported in part by the Center for Public Service, a valued community member in the Hatfield School of Government at Portland State University. The Center for Public Service provides individuals, public sector organizations, and nonprofits with access to the intellectual resources and practical experiences of the Hatfield School to help improve governance, civic capacity, and public management locally, regionally, nationally, and around the globe. The Center supports public service organizations with consulting services and applied research in a variety of areas, from human resources and sustainable development to disaster preparedness and cultural communication. The center has multiple subunits, including the Institute for Tribal Government, the Nonprofit Institute, and the Initiative for Community and Disaster Resilience. The center also develops the knowledge and skills of present and future public service leaders through student engagement, professional development, and public service fellowships. The center offers non-credit courses and professional certificates and hosts seminars, panels, webinars, and conferences. To find out more about the Center for Public Service, go to pdx.edu and search for Center for Public Service, or find the direct link on the affiliates page of our website and in the show notes for this episode. I want to take this opportunity now to play a couple of short segments from the other podcast projects I've been working on to catch you up and prove I haven't been sitting around for the past few years eating bonbons. I also think they fit in nicely with the whole pothole problem theme. This first segment is a report by Bob Sharp on how people view Congress. It definitely speaks to the theme of outrage that's central to the pothole problem. Take it away, Bob. One of the few forms of acceptable bigotry left in America is the hatred of politicians. Along with perhaps lawyers and real estate agents, it's not widely considered prejudice to hate someone just for being a politician. If someone said the same thing about a minority that they regularly say about members of Congress, that they're lazy, useless blowhards, the acts of cancellation would fall pretty quickly. But instead, people tend to nod knowingly and move on. Yes, there are some good members of Congress. We just can't figure out what they're good for. Where do they keep coming from? Are you recruiting them off the street? Let's start with a new class that we call Welcome to Congressional Oversight 101, or as I like to call it, Congress for Dummies. Those are jokes from the floor of Congress itself. Here's a bit from the radio and television correspondence dinner. C-SPAN is now in HD, which is great. So now you can see all that legislation not getting passed in 1080p. All the wrinkles and inefficiency, just, oh, so crisp. Maybe things just won't change because Congress's approval rating is 12%. 12%. That's not even one star on Yelp. There are restaurants with rat infestations that are rated better than Congress. That means 12%. That means 88% of people hate your guts. Like if you were in a mall and 10 people walk past you, eight of them would hate your guts and the ninth dude hates you most of the time. It's understandable why Americans would have such a low opinion of Congress as a whole. The institution doesn't seem to do much for them. And to a lot of people, it does things directly against them. Glance at the news and it would seem like the only thing that Congress can do is shut down the government cut benefits, cut taxes on rich people, and let the worst of the clowns run the circus. Hating on Congress is almost a national pastime at this point. 
Looks like those clowns in Congress did it again. What a bunch of clowns. <laughs> How does he keep up with the news like that? Nobody likes Congress. Nobody. I mean, it's not, well, but, well, 13% of the American people like Congress. But the rest of us don't like Congress. And to give you an idea of just how much we don't like Congress, there's a polling group that put Congress up against things that normally we don't like, like lice. <laughs> Nobody likes lice, except when you compare it to Congress. We love lice. France. Nobody really likes France. But when we compare France to Congress, we love France. Colonoscopies. That's right. Compared to Congress, we love colonoscopies. With such high levels of hatred and low levels of approval, we have to wonder what could be done to turn things around for the supposedly most democratic of all of our national institutions. To some, the answer lies with the people themselves. What we need to do is stop voting for these same horrible people, the reasoning goes. If we want Congress to do better by us, we have to send the right people to Capitol Hill. We get the democracy we deserve, or so it's said. To others, that's easier said than done, given the many advantages incumbents have, the two-party system that attenuates voters' choice, the power of well-funded groups to advance their favorite types of candidates, and the polarizing media environment that makes it feel imperative to elect the most pugilistic people on our side to keep our enemies from getting their way. About the only thing that we seem to be able to agree on is that Congress is broken, and something needs to be done. I'm Bob Sharp, and that's all I have to say at this time. This next segment comes from the Applied Political Philosophy podcast, episode six, which explores direct democracy, also sometimes called the Oregon system. This is early Nigel, so you'll probably hear the accent slipping a bit sometimes. Blacksmithing was my trade, and it has always given color to my view of things. I wanted to fix the evils in the conditions of life. I couldn't. There were no tools. We had tools to do almost anything within the blacksmith's shop. Wonderful tools. So in other trades, arts, and professions. In everything but government. In government, the common trade of all men and the basis of social life. Men worked still with old tools, with old laws, with institutions and charters which hindered progress more than they helped it. Men suffered from this. There were enough lawyers. Many of our ablest men were lawyers. Why didn't some of them invent legislative implements to help people govern themselves? Why had we no toolmakers for democracy? These are the words of William U. Wren, a progressive-era reformer credited with winning passage of the first forms of direct democracy in the United States. U. Wren's personal history as a reformer began not with political reform, but tax reform. His earliest priority was passing what was known as the Single Tax, a tax reform advocated in Henry George's controversial book, Progress and Poverty, published in 1879. The single tax was aimed at taxing the unearned profits of industrialists, robber barons, bankers, and land speculators. Upon encountering this book, Uren became an instant zealot. I went just as crazy over the single tax idea as anyone else did. I knew I wanted single tax, and that was about all I did know. Of course, the political system at the time was controlled by the very people targeted by the single tax, and Yu Ren soon realized that he needed different tools to win passage of his tax reform. After reading James W. Sullivan's 1892 work, Direct Legislation by the Citizenship Through the Initiative and Referendum, a clunky title that basically said it all, 
Yu Ren became a convert to the cause of direct democracy. In 1896, Yu Ren won a seat in the Oregon House as a populist, the only elective office he ever held. From this position, he engineered the so-called hold-up legislature by organizing populist representatives and their supporters to boycott the opening of the House session of 1897. Their absence prevented the House from meeting a quorum, meaning the House was unable to be called into session. And with a bicameral state legislature, no legislative business was able to be done for the entire two-year session. Yu Ren had exploited a split within the Republican Party over the re-election of Republican U.S. Senator John Mitchell. Striking a deal with anti-Mitchell faction of Republicans, Yu Ren's populists and the pro-reform Republicans joined together to deny the House quorum. Yu Ren ran for a state Senate seat next, and although he lost that race, he was able to continue his legislative maneuvering as an important populist leader. Threatening more gridlock, he won enough support within the Oregon legislature to pass an initiative and referendum amendment to the state constitution. Under Oregon's constitution at the time, any constitutional amendment had first to be passed in two successive legislative sessions and then approved by a majority vote in a ballot measure. In 1901, the I&R amendment passed the legislature again with only a single dissenting vote. And in 1902, voters ratified it by an 11 to 1 margin. Uren's victory made Oregon the first state to adopt the initiative and referendum process. But Uren and Oregon progressives weren't done forging new tools for the people's use. The Citizen Initiative itself was the avenue through which a series of first-in-the-nation political reforms were proposed and approved. A 1906 ballot measure, which won by a margin of nearly 30,000 votes out of 65,000 cast, extended the initiative power to state constitutional amendments, and a successful 1908 ballot measure, approved by a margin of 3 to 1, made Oregon the first state to give voters the power to recall elected officials. Also in 1908, Oregon voters approved an initiative to choose U.S. Senators through direct popular election, making Oregon the first state to do so, four years before ratification of the 17th Amendment copied that reform at the national level. A third 1908 initiative to reform election laws passed by an overwhelming margin. The Corrupt Practices Act was the nation's first ever campaign finance law. Two years later, Oregonians narrowly passed an initiative to establish the first presidential primary election system in the nation. While the margin of victory was a mere 1,700 out of 85,000 votes cast, two dozen states had copied this innovation within six years. The drive towards political reform began to lose steam in the 19-teens. In 1912, Oregon voters narrowly passed an initiative to grant women the right to vote, making it the seventh state to do so, but rejected another one of Uren's pet initiatives to create a unicameral legislature for Oregon. The margin of defeat was two to one. With the progressive era coming to a close, ballot initiatives in the following decades would be used for decidedly anti-reform causes. In 1922, for example, a Ku Klux Klan-backed initiative to bar students from attending private schools, aimed at closing down the Catholic school system in Oregon, passed by 12,000 votes. That same year, Yu Ren's original holy grail, the single tax, was defeated by a margin of 132,000 to 39,000. In 1924, the Voters' Literacy Amendment, a legislatively referred constitutional amendment requiring a literacy test for voting, was passed by well over 100,000 votes. Since its inception, Oregon voters have passed 127 of 367 initiatives, 23 of 65 referenda, and 257 of 434 legislatively referred ballot measures. With nearly a thousand attempted acts of direct democracy at the state level alone, Uren's Oregon system has undoubtedly placed a good deal of political power in the hands of the voters. Whether it has done so for good or for bad is a subject for further discussion. There you go. That's a taste of what I've been up to during the pothole problem hiatus. I'm back in this space now, trying to make sense of political outrage. 
Year 5 episodes will be released twice monthly for the rest of the academic year. Before I sign off, I want to acknowledge that it's just over a year until the 2024 presidential election, and outrage and fear seem to be ramping up again on all sides. Bigly, as a certain ex-president might put it. As we get closer to this highly consequential election, and these feelings get more and more intense, I'm dedicated to exploring what we can all do, individually and collectively, from every side of the political spectrum, to stand with equanimity inside the hurricane of negative emotions engulfing American politics in these very challenging times we're living through. I promise to work as hard as I can to make it worth your while to keep listening. I'm going to end this episode with an audio clip captured at one of our summer staff parties. Just want to show you all that even we at the Pothole Problem Podcast get outraged and spray it all over the people we're closest to. I'm Jack Miller. On behalf of Nigel, Bob, and Catherine, thanks for listening. Wait, wait, you're not actually saying the Senate should be abolished, are you, Nigel? The United States Senate is a revered American tradition. It's fucking undemocratic though, ain't it, Bob? How can you call yourself a democracy when half the Senate represents like a fifth of the population? It's fucking ridiculous is what it is.